turn in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter two. Um, while you're turning there, just a quick, uh, maybe, you know, argument for a real Bible with real paper. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, this is a, like, you know, you're gonna lose your salvation if you use an iPad or iPhone for your Bible or any of that stuff. But there's something about um, a real Bible and there's, there's a, it's not just a mystic, mystical or mysterious thing, it's, it's a practical thing. You know, um, these iPhones and iPads, they all have messaging and they all have things that are distraction. There's a whole world in your hands. It's like you've got the Bible in your hand with an iPad, but you also have Google and uh, you know, you've got the World Wide Web uh, and all its uh, things. You got, you got your calendar and your schedule and your reminders and all that. And sometimes there's something to say for just a good old fashioned Bible. Leave your phone in another room and open your Bible without distraction. There's another thing that I love about having a real Bible. And that is, you know, knowing where scriptures are. You know, there's a lot of times I couldn't really tell you chapter and verse, the numbers, but I know I can flip to it in my Bible. Uh, it's just a muscle memory kind of thing. And I know where it is in the Bible. I know where it is on the page of my Bible and I can find things really quickly. And I can't do that as well with my iPhone. Um, maybe there's an argument people can say, well, you memorize the scripture address better when you don't have a paper Bible. But, but there's something about carrying a Bible, keeping it with you, um, reading it, uh, and you know that, that um, it's easier on the eyes than looking at a digital screen, even as science tells us that, you know, all the screen time that we have is not so great. Um, so I, I would argue, if you don't have a great Bible, get a great Bible, keep it, make it your own, start. Like I like to mark my notes in my Bible um, and it reminds me of things that I've gone through. And I know you can do all that with your phones and uh, different software, but I'm just making a, a last ditch plug for the final, for the few, for the brave who will stick to a real Bible with real paper. Uh, I think there might be advantages that people are missing out on just because of out of convenience. Um, but that's just something for, for you to wrestle with and to uh, decide. As we approach Jeremiah chapter two, um, I'm reminded of, of um, the Genghis Khan and the Mongo Mongolian you know, battles of the early 1200s. You know, um, it, a lot of people don't really realize that Genghis Khan really conquered a massive amount of the world. Um, and as you kind of know the history of Genghis Khan, he, you know, conquered the Chinese and then all the way over the steppe, uh, all the way over, you know, that steppe is kind of a vast wasteland. Some people say it's like the ocean without water. Uh, the steppe is that kind of expanse between China all the way over to the, U the Ukraine. And, um, and, you know, Genghis Khan conquered everywhere, uh, all of that and into Europe. And, um, but one of the things I wanted to share with you about was Genghis Khan was kind of a guy who was not as religious. Um, it doesn't seem like religion motivated him at all, but he, he used to have kind of a worldview that was interesting. And that is, if he was wiping your, you out, your gods wanted that to happen. <laughs> so, so they were known to be brutal. You know, the, 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 uh, you've heard the wrath of the Khans and Genghis Khan and the Mongols. And, and it is, it's really a, a quite a bloody, horrible story. And there was, you know, times where the, the Mongols would just, just wipe out entire people groups. Uh, you know, people that are now extinct because of the Mongols uh, that were people groups before. 
and millions and millions and millions and millions of people killed. It's an amazing thing that history, a lot of us, we think of Genghis Khan as some guy that must've been an amazing leader and he almost goes down as like a great person, but he, he killed millions and millions and millions of people. But he used to send his emissaries and what have you to these nations and basically you will submit to me and the reason why is because you have been unfaithful to your God and, um, and God is using me as a tool to wipe you out if, uh, because of your sin and your evil that you're doing. What's amazing is he, I think he really believed that if I can beat you, God must be, your God must be mad at you. He, he was very much of a liberal religiously. He kind of let everybody, even when he'd conquer a people group, he'd let them worship whoever they want. Um, but he would just say, the reason I beat you is because you must have done something really bad to deserve me. <laughs> and that's what Genghis Khan, that was his worldview. And so he went on and conquered. The reason they were able to conquer is because they, it, it'd be like the, you know, the Dallas Cowboys going against the Athey Creek Cougars across the street. You know, uh, you know the, the, the Mongols were uh, like circus horsemen rider level. Like they could ride horses like nobody's business. And while they were riding, they could shoot arrows. They could shoot a bird out of the sky with an arrow while they were in a gallop. Um, like these, these Mongols were amazingly skilled. And you say, Brett, that does raise kind of a question. You know, does, does God punish nations? And, um, and the answer is yes. Um, there's many scriptures. If you've been going through the Bible with us, uh, there's, there's many, many times where God says, I'm gonna judge this nation, I'm gonna judge that nation. Um, we went through whole sections where the Lord divvied out judgments for, you know, if you remember, uh, everybody from, you know, uh, Jordan to, which is, you know, ancient, uh, you know, uh, places like Elam and Moab and the Edomites and all those people, they say, you know, judgments upon Edom, judgments upon Moab, judgment upon Egypt, judgment upon, you know, Syria and Assyria. And the Lord says, I'm gonna judge those nations. But the funny thing is God would also use those nations to judge his people. And as it turns out, you know, um, the, the Lord would do that even with the Jews. In a sense, Genghis Khan was correct in his worldview. You must be doing something wrong <laughs> uh, to have me come and wipe your people out. That's what he said. And in the same way, the Assyrians had already done this to the northern 12, uh, I should say, 10 tribes of Israel. Um, you know, hundreds, a couple hundred years earlier, the, the Assyrians, they would be the tool that God would use to judge the Jews in the north, the northern 10 tribes. And the southern two tribes are still alive and kicking, and they're actually prospering during the time of Jeremiah. But you see, Jeremiah, part of his job is to say, remember the guys in the north, how uh, the Assyrians came and wiped them out? You're next. That was what he was saying to the, the, the remaining two tribes. But the two tribes, they're going, hey, we're living prosperously. We're in safety. We're doing good. But meanwhile, the Lord was growing a little group of people called the Babylonians. And ultimately, those Babylonians would come and start to, um, you know, wave after wave, come and oppress the people of the southern two tribes, the men of Judah. And, uh, you know, if you remember, by the way, all the northern 10 tribes, they always had evil kings. All their kings were evil. But in the southern two tribes, about half their kings were good, about half their kings were bad. During this time of Jeremiah chapter two, Josiah is the king and he's a good king. 
And the problem is during these good times with a good king, that's when Israel starts doing stuff that is, it's when they're under peace and safety and where everything's rosy, that's when they start going off the rails theologically and start worshiping other gods and doing other things that are evil. And so Jeremiah, part of his objective is to say, the Lord's gonna use another nation to judge you, the Jews, for your rebellion against the true and living God. Um, And so does God judge other nations and use other nations to judge other nations? He does. And there's even future uh, descriptions of those things that haven't even yet happened in history. Um, We could talk about the burden of the Lord on Damascus, how in Syria, God is gonna, according to the Bible, is gonna allow Damascus, the oldest city in the world, the longest inhabited city of all time in the world is Damascus in Syria, and it's gonna be uninhabitable someday. Um, could implicate a, a nuclear weapon of some kind, just flattening the whole city um, and killing everyone in it. Um, that's just read Isaiah 17. That's a prophecy that has yet to happen. Um, Russia and Gog and Magog and, and uh, Turkey and Iran, these are nations that are gonna be judged by the Lord and probably in the nearer future. Um, What about the United States? This is where we kind of have to start praying and thinking as American Christians, is God gonna someday judge the United States of America? You know, um, we we have um, in front of us an election, you know, this, you know, everybody's already sending in their ballots and millions of ballots are being turned in. But, you know, the thing that's interesting about our nation is a lot of countries throughout the ages didn't make decisions. Um, It was the kings that made all the decisions. And if you got wiped out by a, another kingdom, it oftentimes was the king's fault for handling everything wrongly. But here, as we live in somewhat of a democracy, and that even is in question, you know, now about voting and is it really legit and all this stuff. But, you know, uh, there, there's kind of that old saying that, you know, the people, uh, especially in a democracy, we get the leaders we deserve. And it's interesting to me to watch our nation as we have spiraled away from God and into our own evil practices. And watching how really these, um, these days that we live are so perilous, they're perilous times, like the Bible says they would be. And so this evening, you know, as we read Jeremiah, we're not that disconnected really. I almost feel like Jeremiah's words to the men of Judah before their nation was about to be destroyed. I wonder if these words will echo so accurately in the days that you and I live. You know, that was the Lord raising up some people group or kingdom or thing to make our nation be humbled and even be judged? Um, It could be, not gonna say that emphatically, but I do feel like we've had somewhat of a, a blessed, you know, couple of hundred years in our nation largely because we were a nation that sought after God. We used to be able to say with some, intel, you know, with some you know, integrity, uh, in God we trust. But can we even say that anymore uh, as a nation? We can say that as Christians, of course, but can, can our nation say in God we trust? Um, that's a good question. But it wouldn't shock me if the wrath of the Lord would be put upon this nation as we've really continued to spiral further and further away from his word. So, you know, these words of Jeremiah, that we need to listen and pray through this and say, Lord, is this something you would say to us today? The same things that uh, Jeremiah the prophet is saying to them in that day. 
And it would be uh, in Jeremiah's lifetime that he would see the fall and the destruction of Judah. Um, he, he dies the year Nebuchadnezzar uh, takes uh, the Jews into captivity in 586 BC. Jeremiah tried to warn everyone, no one listened. Um, is it possible for America to repent and to be turned around? I think it is. We don't know the day or the hour of the Lord's return. We don't know what's gonna happen for sure. And any Bible prophecy person or somebody who says for sure this is what's happening or we are at the end for sure, um, I'd be a little bit leery of that whole kind of way of teaching because so many people have been wrong about that. They thought they were in, by the way, did you know that Geng, uh, Genghis Khan, the Christians of that era uh, believed that that was the Gog Magog invasion of uh, Ezekiel 38, uh, and 39. They, they called it the Gog-Bagog invasion. These, these people they knew nothing about, the Mongols, and they called it, the, they thought it was that at the time. It wasn't, but they thought because of the you know, apocalyptic level of destruction. So just because we see the possibility of it being the end, we don't know for sure. So I do pray that maybe we'll have one more season of enlightenment here in America where we repent of our sins and go back to the word of God and you know, see, see some of the evil that we're doing, like abortion, which is uh, one of the most uh, horrible things humanity's ever done is allowed abortion to take place. Um, and and you know, if God doesn't judge us for that alone, uh, I'd be surprised. But if we were to repent and humble ourselves and pray, could it be that God could heal this land? I think it's possible. So we need to be praying about that but uh, the Lord's will be done. So Lord, give us ears to hear what Jeremiah the prophet is saying, because I think he could have said a lot of these things to us today, and we need to take them to heart. So Jeremiah chapter two, uh, just uh, a lot of people try to find patterns in the book of Jeremiah, and um, it's hard to find them. People have tried to find structure in this book. And the reason they struggle with this, by the way, is because Jeremiah doesn't really write things chronologically or in a, in a chronological order of a timeline. Um, uh, so you never know what era or time he's talking about. Uh, uh, and that's a little tricky. Or what king is in place at any given time. But I mentioned on last week's study that he was alive during seven kings. His ministry was uh, up and running during five kings. One of those kings was Josiah. Remember the eight-year-old king? Uh, that was a, a guy that followed after the Lord and tore down idols. This is the era of chapter uh, two, where we start talking about this time of Josiah. Um, and really, if there is an order, you know, you can't make it chronological, but some people say that chapters two through six makes a nice unit because Jeremiah sort of continues to talk on a theme and we'll see what that theme is here in Jeremiah chapter two. But, um, but he's speaking to Judah. Israel's already destroyed the Northern 10 tribes. They've been gone for a couple hundred years. And now Judah is the only one left, the Southern two tribes, and he's pleading with them. So here he begins in chapter two, verse one. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem saying, thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thy espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord and the first fruits of his increase. 
All that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. He's saying, okay, everybody listen up to what I'm about to tell you. And he says, sort of in this longing remembrance, the Lord says, I remember thee, the kindness of your youth, the love of thine espousals. Um, that's a way we would say, it's not the exact same thing, but we would say the love between a um, newly engaged couple. Now, espousal was a little different than being engaged, but, but that's the general idea. The Lord, Lord is saying, remember the young love that we used to have, Israel and, and the Jehovah? We, we had a love, and he says, I remember that kindness of the youth and the love of thy espousals. Um, you know, this, this reminds me a little bit, uh, and really the theme here is leaving your first love. You know, that's the problem. And, and remember the church at Ephesus there in the book of Revelation. You know, in chapter two, it says, you know, uh, that, that Ephesus, they had a bunch of good things going on. They were doctrinally sound, um, uh, which is, is good. I mean, like, that's commendable. In fact, they used to give tests to these so-called apostles and prophets that came into town and they would give them tests. And if they didn't pass the doctrine test, they would shun them and point them out and say, that guy's a false teacher. You know, they were heavy on doctrine. Um, and and I, I love that. And, and I have to be careful not to be like Ephesus where you are really good in doctrine. But what was the thing Jesus had against the church in Ephesus? He said, I have this thing against you that you left your first love. A lot of people use the word lost. You lost your first love. Nope, losing something is, what did I do with that? Uh, uh, you know, no, they left their first love of the Lord. And the admonition there of Jesus to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 is, um, remember from whence thou art fallen. Repent and redo the works you used to do when you, you, know, when you were, were in love with the Lord. Um, and that's a good word for maybe some of us. Maybe you have been a Christian for years. And um, maybe you've left your first love. I love that the Bible gives us the, pres the prescription of how to fix it. You remember where you lost it, left it, uh, and then go back to that place and do the same works you were doing and repent, change your mind, change your heart. Um, that's what the Jews need to do here. They, they've, you know, left their love, their love for God, and they, they uh, uh, you know, sort of, you know, adulterated themselves to other gods and fell in love with them and, and the things that were associated with those lust prosperity, materialism, greed, and all that stuff that was associated with those gods and goddesses of that region. And the Lord says, I remember when you used to love me like a, an espoused you know, bride, but now you've, you've left that love. And the Lord says, hear ye, O nation of Israel. Because of that, that's, the next stuff's gonna follow. Be careful. You know, I, I feel like we've lost that to a degree in America that we've left our first love of the Lord. You know, when you look at the founders and the writers, and it's so tragic because not only, um, not only have we left it, but we're trying to rewrite the history and we have, and maybe even successfully, you know, a lot of the academia has rewritten, oh, they were not really Christians. They didn't believe in Jesus. They were just deists who believed in some kind of God. And they try to make this deist argument. Um, and it's not an honest review of history. I, I do have to say I like David Barton um, where he has collected important books and writings and journals and all of these early founding fathers of our nation. And uh, nobody's, he's bottom up. Like they're, um, what is the name of his, uh, I forget, uh, Heritage, 
Foundation, I think, or something like that, where, um, look up David Barton, but he's literally got a library where he put, he's collected and purchased and uh, you know, made basically a museum of our founding fathers' writers or writings uh, that include passionate relationships with Jesus Christ. They were not just deists. Um, you know, uh, uh, people need to know this. And, uh, but the, the, the college professors of the day try to, you know, secular at least, they try to erase our godly heritage. And it's really unfortunate. All that to say, um, we once had that first love as a nation, uh, but we've left it. And, um, and I think we need to repent go back and do the things we were doing before, um, the good things. We've always been sinners, so you have to sort that out. Um, take the good things that we were doing and seeking after God and, uh, and do those things again. Uh, that's how we're gonna, if we're gonna see this, late, this nation you know, revive or have a, another enlightenment period, um, it's gonna have to require repentance and a turning back to the word of God and turning back to the Lord and forsaking our sinful ways. Is that gonna happen? Doesn't sound very likely, does it? But it's happened in other times in, in, in histories, you know, past. So um, that's something to think about. Well, that's what Jeremiah starts his whole uh, thing out saying, man, I remember when you loved me, the Lord's basically saying. So hear the word of the Lord. Verse five, thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain. Can you imagine a perfect God who had never, has never sinned, doesn't know what sin feels like or does because he's perfect, God doesn't sin. Saying, what iniquity or sin have you found in me? Have I sinned against you in any way, shape or form? Isn't it interesting that that's the, um, the MO of humanity? Well, if God is love, then why do bad things happen in the world? And they try to put God in this light of being sort of a sinful being, how he's just allowing catastrophe on humanity and it's God's fault. And he's sinning because he doesn't care that you know Hurricane Zeta right now is coming up on the coasts of our South. Uh, he, God doesn't care, it's God's fault, God's a sinner. Like that's the, that's the sort of view that the world wants to portray in the light that God is in. But God has never sinned and he's completely righteous. There's no darkness in him at all, the Bible says. Um, but it's funny how humanity, we can shake our puny little fists at God thinking that he's done something wrong. Um, I've even had people say, you know, I, I don't think I can forgive God for this or forgive God for that. It's like, what? Uh, you better hope that your sins are forgiven by God. Um, we're the sinner. And if we think that God has sinned, uh, that's heretical. God has never sinned. You don't, you don't do that. You don't believe that because that's uh, uh, contrary to what the Bible teaches. So here's the Lord rhetorically saying, what? What is the iniquity I've done to make you turn on me and turn against me, the Lord says. And you've walked after vanity and have become vain. So um, interesting, you know, sarcastic statement, statement really um, but you can also see the passion of the Lord here, that he's sort of passionately saying, you used to love me, and have I sinned against you? Like there's this passion you almost sense from God toward his people. Well, verse six goes on, neither say they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought 
and the shadow of death through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after the things that do not profit. Now here, the Lord is saying, you're, this, is, this is the sad, sad part of this. The priests, the prophets, the pastors, they were out to lunch during this time. You see, the thing we have to recognize here is it seems that during the reign of Josiah, he was having a spiritual enlightenment um, but the nation was just going, yeah, Josiah the king's really a you know, passionate guy about God, you know, and good for him. Uh, but it seems that they sort of followed King Josiah and in his tearing down of idols and did what he said as he read the scriptures in their ears. But there was sort of a pseudo salvation. There was sort of a fake, it's almost like if you could say Josiah was having in his heart this passionate love for God, but the rest of the kingdom like, yeah, whatever, good for you, jo Josiah, and, and we'll be religious, and we'll worship God, and we'll have our priests, and we'll have all this stuff. But they really were not into following the Lord at all. Um, and so that's the problem. One of the things that we have to remember, and this, this is an interesting thing to remember uh, during a time of an election and stuff like that, can you legislate godliness? Can you legislate morality even? Um, and I found that that really doesn't happen. You know, he, here, here's the problem. Um, you know, let's just say we were able to, uh, you know, reverse Roe versus Wade and abortion suddenly becomes illegal uh, again. Um, you know, the, the, the other side of the argument would say, see, now there's gonna be women in dark alleys, you know, getting abortions. Um, uh, that are unsafe and will even kill them. And, and you say, yeah, that's horrible and, and stuff like that. But see, when you legislate morality, um, people still aren't gonna be moral. That's not gonna make them do the right thing. They're gonna find ways around it and do stuff that's dangerous and evil, uh, just as evil as before. There needs to be not a legislation of morality, but a regeneration of the heart. There needs to be salvation and repentance in a nation. Um, you know, when Jonah went into Nineveh and said, repent, and the whole place repented, they all had a heart change. It was a regeneration. They, they turned to the Lord and they followed after the Lord and did the right things. Um, we can't just legislate morality. Nobody will wanna do those things because they're not convicted in their soul spiritually to follow after God. Um, so that's something we have to remember when we're talking about legislating, especially morality. That's never worked throughout all of history. Um, you know, during the prohibition, we tried to, you know, outlaw uh, alcohol. But uh, those of you that watched the Waltons, remember the Baldwin sisters? <laughs> they had the recipe, you know, where they would drink their, you know, whatever it was, their moonshine, but they called it the recipe, grandma's mother's recipe. You know, the, it was laughable because um, the prohibition was, was laughable. Um, Debbie's grandfather uh, was a kind of a, um, a sparky, 
uh, kind of rascally kind of guy, uh, quite amazing guy. But, but during the prohibition, he, he flew uh, alcohol over the border in his plane. Uh, to bring it here into the United States. Like, like uh, that's, the, that's the thing. As soon as you outlaw something, well, there's money to be made uh, in the black market and uh, you can't legislate morality. It's gotta, it's gotta be a change from the inside out. And that's what's gotta happen in America if we're gonna see a new season of enlightenment. It can't just be us Christians saying, okay, y'all better be good and stop having abortions and start worshiping God. Like we can't just make people do that. It's gotta be a real regeneration of the heart. And that doesn't happen through politics. That's the truth of the matter. It just doesn't happen through politics. So we have, to, we have to be praying for a real revival. Josiah's time was not a real revival. I would make that argument. Um, even though Josiah, I think, had a real heart toward the Lord as the king, Jeremiah was giving words from God with a real true heart for the Lord, but the nation was sort of following along going, well, okay, yeah, whatever, but they really didn't have a change of heart. It's that kind of a problem. Um, something to really think about in what you do. I, I notice a lot of people, a lot of Christians, um, are spending a lot of time uh, talking about politics. Um, and if you know me, I, I'm interested in politics. I, I know as much as the next guy about what's going on in the world politically and stuff like that. But I do wonder, what do we think we're really gonna accomplish with politics? And uh, you know, the amount of time we're spending talking about it or you know, trying to get people to think a certain way politically and I just don't think we're really gonna, you can't do better. Now here's what, what's, what's gonna be the important part. You can't do better than to lead someone to Jesus Christ, to, to have them believe in Jesus and have a heart change and be not just you know, um, an attitude change, but a heart change, a regeneration, where they're truly repentant of their sins, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and then the Lord will work on them. You can't just go, let's just say to a pro-abortion young lady in Portland say, abortion is evil, you better stop it right now. And she go, oh, okay, I'm gonna stop. That doesn't happen. But if you go to that young lady and say, man, you know that abortion you once had and the next one you're about to have? Did you know the Lord still loves you and will forgive you for that? Because the Bible calls that sin and, and that burden of guilt that you feel in your life, you need Jesus Christ who loves you and wants to save you and forgive you for all your sins. And then that girl needs to be saved. And if she softens her heart and accepts Christ, then her sins are forgiven and, she, and the Lord will regenerate her heart and her mind and transform her to know that abortion is evil and wrong, that God views the life inside the womb as a baby, a real life person that he's forming in the mother's womb. You can't do better than to lead someone to Christ. Um, if you're trying to make them a Trump supporter, lose, lose right there. If you're trying to make them vote, uh, you know, uh, conservative or liberal or whatever you're trying to do, if you're trying to get pro-Biden, lose, lose. Uh, politics will not change a nation. Um, it's been proven for centuries that the politics only leads us to more and more trouble. Um, I hope we're seeing that. I hope you're sensing that, um, you know, over the years, these are interesting times. Over the years, I've had people, Pratt, why, aren't you, why don't you have more, you know, t t things politically in your church? We need you to put up posters and we need you to sign, you know, petitions and we need you to talk about this and this and this. And I've always said, you know what? Um, I'm, I'm handling the politics in my own way. And one of the ways I do that is saying, I'm gonna preach the gospel. 
um, and I'm gonna keep preaching the gospel and I'm gonna teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the, through the scriptures uh, because that's the way people are really changed. And I know it's a slow process, but when I first came to Portland back in 1996, Portland was the least church city in America. And you know what's neat? I feel like we've made a little dent here. I, I didn't even imagine that we'd make as big of a dent uh, as we have, by the grace of God, you know, here we got this church that, you know, in, in the least church city in America, you know, in 25 years, we've just watched it boom and grow and people saved and hearts transformed. And, and, uh, and then our online presence has been so wonderful to see how many people are listening in and, and uh, lives are being changed. Um, last week we had several, you know, remember when I had the uh, invitation to accept Christ, we had a bunch of people text in and, and say, new, new believer. You know, it's just so cool to see the fruit of that. And that's gonna change the, the, the nation we live in uh, more than you marching with a sign about this or that or the other. Um, be careful, Christians. Let's keep, our, let's keep our, the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is not Joseph Biden. And the main thing is not Donald Trump. The main thing is Jesus Christ who died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. And if we wanna see this nation changed, we need Jesus. Through thick or thin, for better or for worse, we need Jesus. No matter what happens after the election in a couple weeks, which could go any number of ways, we need Jesus in this nation. And that should be our message. I hope after this election stuff is over, I hope all of your social media accounts, I hope all of your, um, that you just kind of give politics a breather and then say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus on somehow um, pointing people back to Christ because that's where it's really at. Well, I'm way off course. Uh, we gotta get back to this uh, Jeremiah story. So um, basically the people, the prophets, the, the, the pastors, they were misleading the people. Is that happening today where pastors and preachers and teachers and prophets and all this, the so-called, are, are uh, misleading? I think so. It's, it's, um, it's, it's hard to find these days. And they're, they're out there and they're great, great churches that are still teaching. I think sometimes the smaller churches, I think there must be still a lot of really small churches out there that are just solid, still just teaching the Bible, still sticking. I hope there's that because I don't see a lot of the bigger churches go in the right direction on so many things, but just being focused on the word of God, man, that's so important. These people were way off and, and so off were they that they moved from believing the true and living God to worshiping Baal and these other gods and goddesses. Verse nine, wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. The Lord is gonna plead with his people. I love that the Lord doesn't force his people to follow him. But the Lord simply, um, you know, pleads with the people. He, he, it's almost like he wants to woo them back to rightness. And he wants to, you know, and he wants to, to, to lovingly say, hey, follow after me. Um, I've got this for you. I, you know, I, I, wanna, I wanna take care of you and I wanna provide for you and take care of all your needs. And it's like he's pleading. Oh, it's like there in Deuteronomy, he says, oh, that they would have a heart to follow after me, the Lord would say. So he's gonna plead with the Jews and their children's children. And um, that's a promise, by the way, that he's made to the Jews specifically. Um, he hasn't said that to America, that the Lord's gonna plead with us and with our children's children. We don't know that that's true, uh, but we do know that he's pleading with the Jews for all time to come. It says that right here. 
Verse 10, for pass over the isles of Shittim and see and send unto Kedar and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. Um, uh, uh, Chittim or Shittim is, uh, is known as um, Cyprus and, um, and Kedar is sort of the edge of the Arabian desert. Um, and basically he's saying, you know, uh, if you look over that, see if, if, uh, if there's such a thing as, as what's happened where the Jews have forsaken the true and living God. And the answer is no, there hasn't. Look all over the world, it's not there. That's kind of the idea. And then it says, uh, verse 11, hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So we looked at this a few weeks ago, this uh, verses 12 and 13, but verse 11 is saying they've changed their you know, true God for a bunch of false fake gods and they're happy about it. Um, you know, there's, there's so many examples of this in the Bible. Remember when the Philistines there in, um, in uh, you know, 2 Samuel, uh, it says that they, um, they were gonna attack the children of Israel and the Jews were getting beat by the Philistines uh, in battle. And the Jews just didn't know what to do when they finally said, you know, hey, let's, uh, let's um, bring the Ark of the Covenant. It was actually 1 Samuel chapter five. Um, where, where uh, the story kind of comes to fruition, where they, they bring the Ark of the Covenant. Hey, it will save us. It will beat the Philistines. They were making a fundamental error thinking that the Ark of the Covenant represented the power of God, but it didn't. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. Big goof on the Jews' part. They thought it was some good luck charm. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant in and the Philistines wipe out the Jews and steal the Ark of the Covenant. But that's where the story gets kind of interesting. The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant as sort of battle spoil, thinking, man, we got this huge box of gold, a solid gold lid, gold, you know, and poles and everything, this is awesome. And they think this must be their God. So they took the Jews' God and said, hey, we can add that to our God. And so they took the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of their God and their God was half man, half fish called Dagon. So they put the Ark of the Covenant there and next to Dagon, well, the next morning they came in and Dagon had fallen off his pedestal. Their, their, their stone you know, representation of the half man, half fish God. And so they propped him back up. Thought, what a coincidence. We put this you know, Israeli God in here and he falls down before the, that's, that's a bummer. So they prop their God up. Listen, if you're propping your God back up in the morning, that's probably a, a, a not a good idea. Well, the next morning it happened again, only this time his head and his hands fell off, uh, broke off before. And, and the Philistines like, something's up. Not only that, the Philistines, well, the story gets really embarrassing. The Philistines are then plagued with a horrible situation where everyone, man, woman, and child had massive hemorrhoids. <laughs> That's what God, does God have a sense of humor? I think so. Well, you know, I'm sure some Philistine Dagon priest said, Dagon it, we gotta do something about this. So they, they, uh, they got, they got the dumb idea, say, we gotta get rid of this ark. So they put it on a cart and they made little golden mice because we don't know why the mice. They, some people think it was, they thought that mice were the ones who brought the plague of hemorrhoids. So they made little golden mice and little golden hemorrhoids. 
and put it on this ark, this uh, wagon and put the ark on there and just let two cows walk off with it. Well, these cows, now that's, that's interesting because they exchanged the true representation, God's presence, they exchanged that and said, we don't want that. We like a God we can control. We don't want real power. Um, so they go back to their Dagon God and then they send the Jews God back. Well, the men of Beth Shemesh are just out, you know, hanging out when suddenly they see their ark coming back to them. The Jews are like, there's a couple cows dragging a cart with the Ark of the Covenant and there's these mice, golden mice and these, we don't know what these other things are, <laughs> but the Ark of the Covenant comes back. And um, remember when the Jews uh, didn't have the Ark, this woman gave birth and named her son Ichabod. Um, and that means no presence of God. So there's, a, there's an example where, you know, the Philistines chose to have their own false God over the true and living God. And that happens throughout all of humanity. The Jews did it on Mount Sinai. God brought them out of the land of Egypt to, to safety. And when Moses went up to the mountain, the people said, you know, we need a real God that we can see. So they made a golden calf. And they said, behold, the gods of Egypt that brought us out of the land of Egypt. Stupid, replacing, you know, false gods for the true and living God. Now, you, you and I, as modern day people, we say, well, we would never do such a stupid thing. But we do. It may not be an image or an idol that we swap out with the true and living God, but the same notion that's behind those images and idols and what have you, they're behind them. They're still alive and well. Greed, materialism, trusting in our own financial portfolio, um, looking to ourselves and our power, you know, um, looking for other things for pleasure, you know, worshiping the goddess of Astra th through sexuality and pornography and all that stuff. Like we do the same things. We exchange the truth for a lie. And that's, that's the nature of humanity. And this is what Jeremiah, by the way, this is gonna be a major theme in his book and his word to the people of Israel, that you guys are swapping out a lie uh, in place of something that's actually true and powerful and living. And you've exchanged it, the fountain of living water for me. If you missed that study a couple weeks ago, uh, you can get it online. Um, you know, broken cisterns is what, what we called that, I believe. Well, he goes on in verse 14. Is Israel a servant? Is he a homeborn slave? Why is he spoiled? Now, it doesn't mean like he's a spoiled brat. It means um, become a spoil. He's, 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 he's actually, they've been spoiled by other nations. Um, you know, is Israel gonna be enslaved? The answer is yes. Verse 15, the young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also the children of Naf and the Tehapanes have uh, broken the crown of thy head. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when he led thee by the way? Didn't you do this to yourselves when you forsook the Lord? Did, did what? Well, there's a, there's a language thing here that Je uh, Jeremiah uses that, um, that is a literary technique that might be confusing to a modern day reader. But it's, uh, do you guys remember what a synecdoche is? It's like using something to sort of speak of something else. Um, like if you say, hey, did you see my new wheels? Uh, you're, you know, I'm showing you my new car. But I just said wheels because everybody knows that when you say, hey, look up, take a look at my new wheels. Or uh, I remember uh, hearing my grandfather say something about my mother. She sets a fine table. 
And I thought that uh, that meant that she puts nice paper, you know, or, you know, plates and stuff on them. But it's actually, she's a good cook. It's a, it's a synecdoche. Well, that's what Jeremiah uses here in, in two things. Um, when he says, um, Noph and Tehapanes have broken the crown of thy head. Noph and Tehapanes, who is that? Well, Noph is a place today we would call Memphis. Memphis, Tennessee? Nope, not Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Egypt. And Tehapanes there is um, another uh, part of Egypt, probably... Um, you know, uh, the lower section of Egypt. It's a little bit like a definition of what Egypt is from north to south. Um, and uh, it's like when Israel says from, you know, Dan to Beersheba, it's like a, it's a thing saying Israel. Um, same thing here. So he's saying basically as the children of Egypt have broken the crown of thine head. What's that about? Well, this is speaking of Josiah. It's at this point in Jeremiah's prophecy that Josiah was probably killed. Um, we know a lot about jo Josiah's death. He was over in Megiddo. Remember, if you've been to Israel with me, we've been to Megiddo. That's where Josiah was slain in battle by an arrow of an Egyptian. Um, and um, <clears throat> so this synecdoche sort of language is meaning all of Egypt has basically wiped out your king, Josiah, killed him by uh, Pharaoh Necho. If you remember from 2 Kings 23, verse 29, that whole story uh, is told. And this is Jeremiah saying, this is because you guys forsook the Lord. You lost your good king, Josiah, because of your forsaking the Lord. That's what he's saying. Well, verse 18, and now, what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Um, that's another name for the Nile River. They're drinking the waters of, what's Egypt a type of in the Bible? Yes. If you said the world, then you're correct. Uh, Egypt is a type of the world. So so now Egypt took out their king because they forsook the God of, of the true and living God. And now they're drinking the water of the world. That's the idea here. Drinking the waters of Sire or Nile. Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Speaking of the Euphrates River. Um, isn't it interesting that, you know, the, the Northern 10 tribes were taken by the Assyrians that were near the Euphrates. But basically these are the rivers that God did not want the Jews drinking of. They were supposed to be drinking, if you would, from the living water, the fountain of water, which we, which we know as Jesus Christ. Now he says something that is a good truth for you and I to know, and it's verse 19. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see it that it is an evil thing and bitter, that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that, that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. Would you mark uh, or take note of verse 19, the first part? Thine own wickedness shall correct thee. Thy backsliding shall reprove. It's not that the Lord's gonna correct you. It's your own wickedness. It's like, you know, um, where Numbers, you know, 32, 23, it says, you know, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. It's not that God's gonna find you out. It's that your sin will find you out. And this is, uh, this is that notion. You know, we think God's gonna get us. No, your sin's gonna get you. It's your own sin. God calls it sin because he knows it's gonna mess you up. It, it's the repercussions of sin. It's not God punishing you. It's your sin catching up to you is kind of what he's saying. Um, and, and it's not just the own wickedness, but he says, the Lord will reprove, reprove you for your backslidings. 
Um, I like Jeremiah 2, verse 19 in the New International Version. It says it this way, your wickedness will punish you, your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord God Almighty. You know, backsliding means to turn away, to turn back, to revert to sin or wrongdoing. Why, why do we backslide? You know, it's interesting because Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 14 basically says, it's oftentimes when we're fat and happy that we tend to backslide. When everything's going good and things are rosy, we tend to fall away. That's one reason we backslide. We're just comfortable, we don't need the Lord, so we go back to things we shouldn't. Uh, number two, the grass is greener on the other side. Mark chapter four, verses 18 and 19, Jesus talked about this. We always think, well, if I could go over there, that's where I'll find happiness. And we backslide away from God towards sin because the grass is greener. And then 1 Timothy 6.10 uh, talks about how when you pursue money um, over the Lord or instead of the Lord, that leads to backsliding. Um, and what makes backsliding a problem is the backsliding, the backslider ends up in total misery. misery. And that's what it says, your own wickedness will correct thee. The way of the transgressor is hard, Proverbs 13, 15. Um, you know, the classic backslider is Luke 15, you know, the prodigal son who walked away from his father and ended up in the pig slop and thought, man, my father's servants have it better off than I do. And the good news is he came back and the father open-armed, receptive, and loved him uh, when he came back. If you're a backsliding Christian, good news, you can repent of your sins and you can make it right when you return to the Lord. Um, Hosea 14.4 says, I will heal their backsliding. When you repent of your sins, the Lord comes in and heals you of the wounds that you had from your sin and gives you a brand new start that's the God that we serve. Don't you love that? That he's the one who forgives our backslidings. Well, verse 20 goes on. It says, for of old time, I have broken thy yoke and burst thy hand, bands, pardon me. And thou saidst, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree, thou wanderest playing the harlot. When did this happen? When did the, the, um, the Jews cry this out to the Lord? You said, the Lord says, I will not transgress. It was at Mount Sinai when the law was given. Um, remember we were talking about dispensation uh, theology where we kind of talk about how there's different dispensations of time. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and I think we, we see how that works out so practically. One of those dispensations was the period of the law. And it's when the Jews thought, you know, uh, well, give us some rules and we'll, 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 we'll not transgress. The law. We'll, we'll keep the rules. The Lord says, okay, here it goes. And he gave them the law through Moses. And the law was proven to be something that the Jews could never even come close to keeping. And um, you say, well, what's the point of that exercise, Lord? Why would you give the Jews the law knowing that they couldn't keep it? Well, Galatians gives us the answer to that. And I hope you're equipped with the answer to this one. What was the purpose of the law of the Old Testament? Real quick, you can jot it down in your notes. I'll just read it for speed. Galatians 5, 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, 
Verily, righteousness should have been by the law, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin. That the promise of faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up into the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster, no longer under the law. The law had a purpose and it was to drive us to Jesus. The Jews said in our text here today, we will not transgress. The Lord said, okay, here's the rules. If you, if you think you can do it, here you go. Boom, law was given and the Jews failed miserably for centuries and millennia. And then we fail and, and, and we can't keep the law. Nobody ever was saved by keeping the law. And so Paul says, "Why we're not under the law, but so what was the purpose of the law? It was the schoolmaster that drives you to Jesus Christ. Because if righteousness could have come by the law, then people would be saved by the law, but no one, all are under sin. You know, that schoolmaster image has always reminded me of my sixth grade year, Half, halfway through my sixth grade year. Um, we moved just to a different school district, just, just down the road, but different school district. And I went from this Beaver Cleaver Roosh Elementary School to uh, Applegate Elementary School. And it was actually an elementary and junior high. But it was a, going from Roosh was going like Beaver Cleaver to suddenly going back a hundred years to this one room type schoolhouse. It was this little old red school building, had a school bell tower built in 1911. And my class was fifth, or uh, pardon me, sixth, seventh and eighth graders were in my class. So it was like this, almost like a one room schoolhouse kind of thing. And this school office person led me to my new classroom halfway through the sixth grade year. And I went into this classroom and um, the teacher was scary to me, Mr. Alexander. And I sat down in my desk and, I, and, and they, they were all quietly working. And, and I remember um, uh, two things. First, seeing Big Red. It was a two by four with a handle that he had carved out and his name, Alexander, was rout, routed into, it was a big red paddle. And uh, he would use that. Uh, and then also he had this retainer with a false tooth on it. And um, he, would, he would sit at his desk looking at the class and he would get his retainer and pop it out of his kind of an, and crunch on it with his teeth. And he had this thing that he called fondly his nose picker. It was one of those teacher pointer things, but he would put the nose picker on the floor and he'd mount his right nostril on the tip of the, no, of the uh, pointer stick and just stick it up his nose and he'd kind of rest his head on this, this, this pointer stick while he's cracking his retainer and we're all sitting there. And, and, and if somebody made noise, he'd walk up and smash the nose picker on the desk. Like it was old school. And, uh, and that's what I picture when I picture the schoolmaster. The schoolmaster that drives us. That, that, that's old school, you know, the paddle. The, the whacking of the paddle and the, the racking of the, the nose picker on the desk. And now, as it turned out, I gotta say, Mr. Alexander became probably my favorite school teacher of my, all my schooling existence. He, he, was, he, he ended up being quite a character and, and actually a great friend and a, an amazing dude. Um, uh, but that's a whole nother story. But at first, he put the fear of the Lord in you. That's for sure. That's what the law was to drive you it's scary, it's undoable, it's, it's painful, and it's not gonna save anyone. That's what it does, it drives us. So the people of Israel said, we will not transgress. And the Lord says, oh yeah, well, here's the law, see if you can keep it. 
And uh, the, the sad truth is they failed miserably. Um, so that's what he says. You, you know, you said, we will not transgress, but verse, end of verse 20, 20 when thou uh, went upon every high hill and every under green tree you wandered playing the harlot. What does high hills and green trees have to do with anything? That's where they worship these pagan deities in the groves of the trees and on the high places. And that's what's being referred to here. Well, verse 21, yet I have planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into a degenerate plant of the strange vine unto me? For thou, uh, thou wash thee with nitre, and thou shalt um, take thee much soap. Yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. Um, nitre is sort of a version of, of lye, um, sort of a soda carbonate. Um, uh, soap is soap. So the people knew that they were sinners and they're like, they tried to wash it with soap and nitre, but that doesn't want, what can wash away my sins? If you said nothing but the blood of Jesus, you are correct. Um, and that's the problem. The Jews thought that they were, they knew they were dirty, but they were trying to clean themselves some other way. And the Lord says, you're not gonna be able to do that. Verse 23, how canst thou say I'm not polluted? I have, uh, I have not gone after Balaam. That's the plural form of Baal or Baal. Um, see thy way in the valley. Know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary traversing her ways as a wild ass um, used in the wilderness that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure in her occasion. Who can turn her away? All they that seek her will not weary themselves in her month. They shall not find her. Um, what is this about the wild donkey and the dromedaries and the camels and all this stuff and going crazy in the wind? Um, <laughs> this, this is uh, something that maybe some of you farmers know about or, or dog people. Um, but here's, in, in a nutshell, he's saying, Israel, you're like the camel that's in heat and the wild donkey that's in heat. And when the wind blows, the other donkeys and camels, mayhem ensues. Um, I've actually talked to people in Israel about camels and when they're in heat, you might as well just put them away in some really strong pen because they go nuts during this time. And that's what the Lord's saying, you've gone nuts. You're like the camel or the wild ass that's gone in heat and the wind is blowing and all the other camels, mayhem ensues. And that's what he's comparing them to. Verse 25, withhold thy foot from being unshod and thy throat from thirst. But thou says, there is no hope, no, for I have loved strangers and after them will I go. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets. Um, you know, basically they're not ashamed because they are thieves, but they're ashamed because they got caught. That's what the Lord's basically saying. Remember when your mom used to, are you sorry just because you got caught or are you really sorry? Lord's saying, he's calling him out on that one. You're not really sorry. You're just still doing what you're doing. Well, verse 27, saying to, the, to a stock or, or a tree, you know, thou art my father. And to a stone, thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. Isn't this interesting? Like the Lord's calling them out saying, you guys have followed and worshiped other gods. You've gone the way of the heathen. 
and you got caught by me, but you don't care that you're caught. You're just you're bummed that you got caught, but you wanna keep doing your thing. And, and, and the people of Israel started believing in reincarnation. That's what it's saying here in verse 20. You're saying to a tree, you're my father. And to a stone, thou hast brought me forth. Reincarnation. Does the Bible teach reincarnation? No. Um, you know, that's, that's a, a really wrong thing. And if you're a Christian, don't be sucked in. I've heard Christian people say, I wonder if you do come back as something else. Dumb, ridiculous. Um, reincarnation, the Bible says it's appointed once for a man to die. You don't come back. It always cracks me up what these people think they were before. In another life, I think I was a queen or a king or I was somebody famous. Uh, nobody says, you know, in another life, I think I was a slug. Like you don't hear that one. Um, reincarnation, when I talk about reincarnation, I can't help but to share this, this poem I love by Wallace McRae. Um, and it's called um, Reincarnation. Let, let me read it to you, it's a great poem. What does reincarnation mean? A cowpoke asked his friend. His pal replied, it happens when your life has reached its end. They wash your hair and comb your neck and clean your fingernails. And they lay you in a padded box away from life's travails. The box in you goes in a hole. It's been dug into the ground and reincarnation starts in when you're planted neath the mound. Them clouds melt down like your box and you who is inside, and then you're just beginning on your transformation ride. In a while, the grass will grow upon your rendered mound until someday on your moldered grave, a lonely flower is found. And say a hoss should wander by and graze on this flower that once was you, but now has become your vegetative bower. The posy that the hoss done ate up with his other feed makes bone and fat and muscle essential to the steed. But some is left that he cannot use and it passes through and finally lays upon the ground that thing that once was you. Then say, by chance I wanders by and see this upon the ground and I ponder and wonders at this object that I found. I think of reincarnation of life and death and such and come away concluding slim, you ain't changed all that much. <laughs> Oh man, that's, that's pretty funny stuff. Um, the horse ate a flower that was once you, and then it passed through, became manure. And that's, anyway, I shouldn't have to explain all that, but uh, some of you probably missed that. <laughs> but there's no laughter here in the sanctuary, uh, so it's hard for me to know if you got it or not. But I hope that you realize reincarnation is a total joke, and it's, it's not true. And that's what the Jews were starting to believe here in verse 27. Verse 28, but where are thy gods that thou hast, that, that hast made thee? The Lord would say, let them arise if they can save thee in a time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. Wherefore will ye plead with me? Ye all have transgressed against me, saith the Lord. In vain have I smitten your children. They received no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. O generation, you see the word of the Lord. Have I been in wilderness unto Israel, uh, a land of darkness? Wherefore say my people, where are the Lord's? We will come no more unto thee. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number. We looked at verse 32 on Sunday about the bride forgetting her dress. And uh, we talked about how we're supposed to say yes to the dress. But in this case, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't put on the bridal gown. 
Uh, and we looked at that on Sunday, but basically the Lord is um, through the prophet Jeremiah being very sarcastic. Where are your gods that you've been following? Call upon them, the Lord says. Um, isn't that something the Lord has a kind of facetious side? And he speaks that through Jeremiah. Um, some people might say, well, no wonder people didn't like Jeremiah's words and reject it because he was being sarcastic. But as it turns out, God uses sarcasm. Um, and that's a tool of God when he says, go ahead, call your gods that you've been following. They're more numerous. You know, these, the number of, of gods you have are more than the cities in all of Israel. So go call them. Um, you've forgotten me days without number. Well, verse 33, why trimmest thou thy way to seek love? Therefore hast thou also taught the wicked ones thy ways. Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor and innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. Yet thou sayest, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee, because thou sayest, I have not sinned. Why gaddest thou about so much to change thy way? Thou also shall be ashamed of Egypt, and thou wast ashamed of Assyria. Yea, thou shalt go forth from him, and thy hands upon thy head, for the Lord hath rejected thy confidences, and thou shalt not prosper in them. You've put your confidences in things that are wrong, so you're gonna go away with your hands on your head. That means into captivity. He's predicting in verse 37, the Babylonian empire taking them off into captivity. And why? Well, verse 35 tells us one of the main reasons why they're gonna go into captivity is not just that they just sinned, but they had rationalized, that's the key word, rationalized in their minds that they were okay. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all good. Nobody's really sinned. That's what he says here. Yet you say, verse 35, because I'm innocent, surely his anger were talking. That's like the person, well, if God is love, he won't send people to hell, thinking that we're all innocent. No, no, a person is, is uh, rationalizing in their mind, I'm okay, you're okay, we're, we're, there's nobody really that bad. And the Lord say, no, you're bad. And the Lord knows the truth. Rationalization is a dangerous thing. Um, what is rationalizing a situation? It's allowing my mind to find reasons to excuse what my spirit knows is already wrong. Um, did you hear what that is? Rationalization is allowing my mind to find reasons to excuse what my spirit knows is wrong. And that's what the children of Israel do. They know what they're doing is wrong in their spirit, but in their mind they say, hey, we can do whatever we want. And if God is love, then this and that and the other. And boy, we have far surpassed Israel in our rebellion against God as a nation here in America, rationalizing our behavior. And we think it's all good, but it's, uh, it's just, we've done that. We've rationalized away. We're trying to allow in my mind to find reasons to excuse what my spirit knows is wrong. And I hope that as Christians, we don't do that. And we need to pray that people's spirit will be stirred and they won't listen to their you know, rationalization minds, but they'll listen to their hearts where the Lord is trying to stir hearts and saying, I'm trying to convict you of sin so that you might be saved. That's what needs to happen. Well, Jeremiah is gonna go on in his uh, challenging of the Jews and Israel, and it's gonna get even more prickly and more powerful as he goes along. But I would pray that we see the condition of our nation for what it is, and that we as Christians, we need to be praying. 
We need to humble ourselves, go to our knees and pray for forgiveness for this nation. We need to pray that we have a revival in this nation. And uh, we need to pray that the Lord will be gracious because we don't deserve good things. What we deserve is wrath. It wouldn't shock me and God would be in his total rights to judge this nation. But I pray that he'd be merciful and that he'd continue to shed his grace on us as he has for these so many years. Um, that's the hope we have in, in, in the United States of America is God's grace. Uh, it's not an election that we put our hope in. I hope you're not doing that because that's not where hope is found. But hope is found in the one who can shake up the nations and wake up people. And ultimately, you know, as Christians, we have heaven to look forward to. And maybe, you know, as America turns this corner, maybe it's part of the plan is for us to not consider this our home. You know, a lot of us have kind of considered, you know, America's our home and, and we're almost more American than we are Christian. But our citizenship is in heaven. I hope that we keep our minds set on things above and not on things of this earth. I hope that we're more heavenly minded through these dark days, looking forward to the return of Christ. But until then, may the Lord let us be lights in this dark world. And may we have ears to hear what the Lord speaks through Jeremiah to the people of Israel, through his word to the people of Portland. In Jesus' name, let's pray. And Father, we take this time now just to thank you for your word. Uh, Jeremiah nails it and he calls out Israel um, giving these inspired words by your spirit to the people, but the people didn't listen. I pray tonight that these words would fall on soft, good, fertile soil, ready to receive the seed of your word that it might bring forth good fruit. Lord, bless the folks who've carved out this Wednesday night to take time to get into scripture and, and get into the word. Lord, bless your people for this evening. And I pray that, that we just continue to walk with you. Help us to have the right focus, that we would keep your son at the center, the main thing um, of our lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.